Today, I'll be preaching a sermon entitled, The Search for the Mystery Revealed. And this particular sermon will focus on the greatness of our salvation. Now, upon hearing that statement, some of you may think, why do we need to hear another sermon on the topic of salvation? Well, one of the primary purposes for sermons on the topic of salvation is that there's always the possibility of unsaved individuals being present when we worship. However, it's also been my experience that when the body of believers come together, it's normally a gathering of saved individuals who are also sometimes suffering. And one of the great weapons that God has given us to buffer the pain associated with our suffering is for us to marvel at his grace in the magnificent gift of our great salvation. See, God in his infinite wisdom knew that each and every one of us would experience pain in this life. Whether it's the pain of a lost job, the pain of a lost loved one, the pain of a friend treating you wrong, or even the pain associated with the merger of your beloved church. No matter who you are, at some point in time, you'll experience pain in this life. Jesus Christ himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. So there's no way around it. At some point in time, you'll experience pain and suffering. And sometimes the suffering that we Christians experience, sometimes it's so acute that it causes us and leads us to run from God instead of to God. Sometimes the suffering is so acute that it leads us to run from the church instead of to the church. Sometimes it even leads us to harbor bitterness toward the pastor, the fellowship, or even toward God himself. The acuteness of suffering has a varied effect on the Christian walk. Take, for instance, suffering associated with the persecution of Christians. I think we can all testify that persecution is growing in the world today, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's in China, or right here on the American soil. The winds of persecution are blowing at a stronger and stronger level. And wherever persecution presents itself, suffering is also present. And sometimes this suffering can cause Christians to not hold fast to their faith. It is this dynamic of not holding fast to the faith in the midst of persecution that the Apostle Peter had in view when he wrote the book of 1 Peter, which is the book that I'll be preaching from today. Specifically, I'll be preaching from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. But in order to give you some context, I'll start out reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. So would everyone please open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Now here, the Apostle Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles 
of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, these are the verses that I'll be focusing on. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, Peter wrote this letter to believers who were dispersed due to intense persecution. As he states in verse 1, he wrote it to believers dispersed to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These were cities in the Roman Empire that are now a part of the country of Turkey. Now, these believers were dispersed due to the growing persecution which began after Stephen was martyred. As you may remember, that persecution was started by the Jewish authorities and it was led by Saul before his future conversion on that road to Damascus. Now, these exiled believers were being persecuted greatly in the Roman Empire. The persecution they experienced saw them lose their homes, their families, and even sometimes their very lives. Now, Up until Peter wrote this letter, which was between A.D. 63 and A.D. 64, the persecution of Christians within the Roman Empire was unofficial, meaning it wasn't mandated by the government. However, in the summer of A.D. 64, a great fire broke out throughout the Roman Empire, and it caused significant damage to the empire. And Nero, who was the emperor at the time, decided to shift the blame for that fire on to the Christians who lived within the Roman Empire. This actually led to government-mandated persecution, and it ultimately led to great, great atrocities 
upon these Christians. It is written through history books outside of the Bible that the Emperor Nero was so evil that he actually waxed the bodies of Christians and set them forth in his garden and burnt burnt them at night to light up his garden. That's how intense and horrific the persecution of Christians were at this point in time in history. Now, before that happened, after the fire, Peter saw that the escalation of persecution was coming within the Roman Empire. And he wrote this letter to encourage those exiled believers. He wrote it in order to exhort them to stand firm in their faith and hold on to their hope. Listen, he wrote it in order to exhort them to live victorious lives in the midst of that hostility. He wrote it in order to exhort them to not become bitter and to abandon their faith. He did this by pointing them to the greatness of their salvation and the search for the glorious nature of its revelation. This is the primary tool used by Peter to encourage these exiled believers. Therefore, it's the primary focus of my message today. Listen, our salvation through Jesus Christ is so amazing that the prophets and angels long to look into it. Now, I'm going to say that again. Our salvation through Jesus Christ is so amazing that the prophets and angels longed to look into it. This is Peter's primary thrust here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And he begins that thrust with these words found in verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Now, after describing in verse 9 the greatness of the salvation possessed by those exiled believers, after extolling the virtues of their heavenly inheritance, the Apostle Peter refocuses them on the importance of that redemption. He says, concerning this salvation. Now, with these words, he punctuates what he wants the exiled believers to focus on. He's reminding them that in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their great persecution, he wants them to focus on the fact that they have an incredible, godly, and heavenly inheritance. An inheritance that is, as he described, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. He punctuates the greatness of that salvation, which he spoke about previously, that salvation that is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, that salvation that has given the exiled believers, as he describes, a living hope, that salvation that is being guarded by God's holy and amazing power, that salvation that is tested by the fire and resulting in praise and glory by those who believe. It is that salvation that he implores them to focus on. As he goes on to further explain how magnificent that gift truly is. And he further explains it by bringing the 
Old Testament prophets into view. And this is right here still in verse 1. He says, concerning this salvation, and here it is, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. Now, when he said the prophets who prophesied, he's specifically referring to the Old Testament prophets. And he does this in order to persuade the exiled believers that the salvation message that he is preaching is one and the same as the future redemption that the Old Testament prophets proclaimed. It is the same as they preached during their time. See, Peter knew that many of the exiled believers were of Jewish heritage. And because of their Jewish heritage, he knew that they respected the Old Testament prophets greatly. Therefore, here he uses the authority of the Old Testament prophets to convince those exiled believers that the salvation doctrine that he has called them to take their very solace in is authentic in nature. This truth that God used the Old Testament prophets to proclaim his redemptive plan is confirmed by many scriptures throughout the Bible. Scriptures such as Hebrew 1.1, which says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In James 5.10, it says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. In Hosea 12.10, God says, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. So God used the Old Testament prophets to speak on his behalf. And what did he have them speak about? Peter answers that question when he says in verse 1 that the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Now here, Peter makes a distinction between the act of salvation and the motivation behind that act. To further clarify, salvation is God's act of saving sinners through Jesus Christ. However, the motivation behind that act is God's God's great mercy being extended towards sinners. And listen, that mercy is undeserved. That mercy is unmerited. It is unearned, meaning there is absolutely nothing that sinners have done in order to deserve it. Therefore, it forms a very definition of God's grace. Undeserved mercy being extended towards sinners by an incredibly gracious God. It's what he extended toward me, and it's what he extended toward each and every one of you who believe, who were rebelling against his holy and righteous standards and in a clear path to the pit of hell, and who were then saved through believing in Jesus Christ. Listen, it is this extensive grace that the prophets had not seen, but yet they still prophesied about. And included in that grace was the fact that not only Jews would be saved, but Gentiles would be saved also. 
we see the mystery of this grace being affirmed in scriptures such as Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. Can you please turn your Bibles to Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. Now here in Ephesians 3, verses 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul says this about the mystery of God's grace in Jesus Christ. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, here, Paul makes it very clear that the mystery of Gentiles being saved through Jesus Christ was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. And when he says the sons of men in other generations, he is talking about all of the people who existed in Old Testament times, inclusive of those Old Testament prophets. See, all of the Old Testament doctrines concerning Gentiles being saved through Jesus Christ, they can only be understood when you're looking through the lens of the New Testament. This is why we can understand those prophecies concerning salvation clearly, because we have the benefit of New Testament revelation. Listen, we have the benefit of knowing that both Jews and Gentiles would be saved. We have the benefit of knowing that we would be both assembled as one church. We have the benefit that we would both partake of the promises in Jesus Christ. We have the benefit of knowing that God's redemptive plan is complete in Jesus Christ. However, the Old Testament prophets, they did not have that benefit. Therefore, they prophesied about God's grace being extended to Gentiles while the particulars of it remained a complete mystery to them. And because it was a mystery to them, Peter goes on to say in verse 1, and on verse 11 concerning this grace, he said they, or in verse 10, they searched and inquired carefully. Now, here when Peter says they searched and inquired carefully, he's pointing to the great diligence the Old Testament prophets showed toward understanding the mysteries of God's grace in salvation. See, the Old Testament prophets had a general understanding that salvation would come. They had a general understanding that the Messiah would deliver it one day. However, they only had clues and did not have all of the particulars. Therefore, they prayed over, studied, and investigated their very own prophecies. See, many of the prophecies that God had them speak had a double meaning. Sometimes those prophecies were directed toward an immediate event or an immediate person, while at the same time it pointed to the glory of Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. And because these mysteries were present in their prophecies, the prophets desired to understand them greatly. 
This desire by the prophets to understand the mysteries within their prophecies is affirmed by Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verse 17. Can you please turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verse 17. And once you're there, you will see that the picture being painted is Jesus with his disciples, and his disciples are perplexed as to why Jesus would speak in parables and not explain them fully to the people who were listening to them. And Jesus explains to his disciples why he does it, and after he explains it to them, he also affirms the great desire that the Old Testament prophets possessed to understand the mysteries of God's grace. Jesus says, For I truly say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So the Old Testament prophets long to understand the mystery of God's grace and salvation. They only had a a glimpse of its complete revelation. And because they only had a glimpse did not know all of the particulars. Peter goes on to talk about their pursuit of the particulars in verse 11. And he says, now we're back in chapter 1 in 1 Peter in verse 11, he says that these Old Testament prophets, they were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, When he said they were inquiring what person or time, as I said before, they knew generally that the Messiah would come one day. However, here Peter points to the fact that the Old Testament prophets were interested in knowing specifically who the Messiah would be. They were searching the prophecies diligently to figure out his exact personhood. And they didn't stop there. They also wanted to know what specific time in history he would come. They wanted to know the exact era that he would be come in and whether it would be a time of peace or a time of war. This desire to know the specifics of prophecies while having its general information is a common dynamic not only among the Old Testament prophets, it's a common dynamic in all eras of Christianity. Because if you think about it, it even affects us in this day and time. Because we have general prophecies such as knowing that the Antichrist will come one day. But we just have the general prophecy. Yet, many Christians in our day and time spend countless hours trying to figure out specifically who the Antichrist will be. As I'm sure you've Heard so many have speculated over the years that it may be the Pope or it may be any of one of so many presidents. Everyone, every time a new president gets nominated, um, Christians spend so much time trying to look into the mysteries of God's prophecies. And this was the same dynamic that the Old Testament prophets were engaged in to a large degree. So this dynamic affected Christians in every era, including ours. And we see a great example of this actually in the prophet John the Baptist. 
Please turn your Bibles to the book of John chapter 1, verse 29. That's John chapter 1, verse 29. Now here, as John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan, the Bible records that Jesus Christ was coming toward him. And the Holy Spirit inspired, inspired John the Baptist to prophesy these exact words about Jesus Christ. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John prophesied that Jesus Christ was the Messiah who would come to take away the sin of the world. However, he still contemplated the meaning of his very own prophecy. Therefore, he tried to figure out at a later point in time if Jesus Christ was the actual Messiah. We see this in the book of Luke, chapter 7, verse 19. Can you please turn your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 7, verse 19. Now here, after John has already prophesied by the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, he then sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him if he was the actual Messiah. It says, And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So John the Baptist inquired about his very own prophecy, and he only had partial revelation, yet he desired to look into it. He only had partial revelation, yet he devoted significant time trying to unravel the mystery of his very own prophecy. Now, how much more should we, who have the full revelation, inquire into the things of God? Listen, how much more should we, who have the full revelation, seek to know the Messiah intimately? How much more should we, who have the full revelation, study the greatness of God's love? How much more should we, who have the full revelation, seek the depths of God's truth? If the prophet's who only had partial revelation, and we have full revelation, how much more should we desire to know the things of God? Amen? Amen. Now, when we look at John the Baptist, we see that it was the Holy Spirit who inspired him to prophesy about Jesus Christ. And the same Spirit that inspired John is the same spirit that inspired the Old Testament prophets. This is why Peter goes on to say in chapter chapter 1, verse 11, that the prophets were inquiring what person or time, and here it is, the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, when Peter says the spirit of Christ in them was indicating he is certifying that it was the Holy Spirit who guided the Old Testament prophets to record God's revelation. Listen, he is confirming that it was the Spirit in the prophets that was testifying that salvation would come through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. His words, the Spirit of Christ, also point to the fact that the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ are equal because here we have an equality of two of the persons that form the Holy Trinity. It also points to the inseparable nature 
of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. It is scriptures like these that we use to form the doctrine of the Trinity. Because with the words, the Spirit of Christ, we see a clear plurality of persons that form the Godhead. But although we see a plurality, we also see a distinction. Because Peter said the Spirit of Christ was predicting about the person of Christ. I'm going to say that again. Peter said the Spirit of Christ was predicting about the person of Christ. Now, how, how can that be? How can the Spirit of Christ predict about the person of Christ? The only way that this is possible is if Jesus Christ, the person, the incarnate one, had always existed as Jesus Christ, the Spirit. Therefore, this points to the fact that Jesus Christ was a spirit being before he became a natural being. In other words, he existed as a spirit before his incarnation as the God-man. And this all points to the eternality of Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus Christ has always existed. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is self-existent. He is not dependent upon any outside source for the ground of his being. And that's a direct definition from our Fundamentals of the Faith class. I I think Brother Bob might remember that one. (laughs) It comes in handy because it explains the magnificent nature of the Messiah that we serve in that he has always existed and he is self-existent, not dependent on anything or anyone for his existence. This is supported by scriptures such as John 1.1, when we look at his eternality, John 1.1, which says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was? Yes. And then it says in John 1.14, that the word then became? Yes. So Jesus, the word, existed as a spirit, guiding the Old Testament prophets, and then he became flesh. He became the incarnate one. And it is he as the incarnate one and all the mysteries surrounding his glory that the prophets were seeking to know more about. Peter captures this diligent pursuit of the prophets in 1 Peter 1.11 when he goes on to say that they were inquiring what person or time The spirit of Christ was indicating when he predicted, and here it is, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, here when Peter says the spirit of Christ was in them predicting the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories, he is establishing the fact that the spirit of Christ was operating in the prophets by way of prophecy to predict his future sufferings and his future glory. We see this predicting of Christ's sufferings in scriptures such as Zechariah 12.10. Now, please turn your Bibles to Zechariah 12.10, and I'm going to give you extra time to find that one. (laughs) As I'm sure all of you just read Zechariah yesterday like me, so you can find it very quickly, right? (laughs) Zechariah 12.10. Now here... In the book of Zechariah, 
Zechariah prophesies about Jesus Christ's sufferings as he proclaims to Israel how God will make them spiritually mourn when God delivers them from their enemies. Zechariah, through the Holy Spirit, says, as God speaks through him, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, and here it is, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now here when Zechariah says they will look on him whom they have pierced, he is predicting the future piercing of Jesus Christ on that cross at Calvary. In other words, he is predicting the future sufferings of Jesus Christ as inspired by the Spirit. And in addition to the future sufferings being predicted, we also see the Spirit in the Old Testament inspiring the prophets to prophesy about the subsequent and future glory of Jesus Christ. We see this in scriptures such as Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Can you please turn your Bibles to Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7? You will see that Isaiah is prophesying about the future glory of Jesus Christ. And he says this about the future glory of Jesus Christ. He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now here, we see Isaiah predicting the future birth of Jesus Christ. We see him predicting the future birth of the Holy Messiah. We see him predicting his future exaltation. We see him predicting his future wisdom. He predicts his future worship. He predicts his future counsel. He predicts his future deity. He predicts his future dominion. He predicts his future kingship. He predicts his future counsel. And he predicts his future reign. These are the subsequent glories of Jesus Christ being predicted by the Old Testament prophet, Zechariah. And when God called Zechariah and other prophets and used them to prophesy about the coming Messiah, he revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. Listen, he revealed to them that they were serving future New Testament believers. They were serving those exiled believers that the Apostle Peter were writing to. They were also serving us, believers in this day and time. We are the direct benefits of the service that the Old Testament prophets engaged in. And Peter affirms this truth when he goes on to say in verse 12, he says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. So, Peter makes it very clear to the exiled believers that 
the Old Testament prophets were serving them. And this forms a great example of godly servitude toward others. And I believe that it's such a great example of selfless servitude as God confirms that it is that it should inspire us because the prophets, they were under great duress. They experienced great persecution, yet they went forth and proclaimed God's prophecies. They proclaimed the word of God. And I know it encourages me personally as a preacher of the word of God to see the great length that they went to. Not that I am a prophet or that anyone in this day and time is a prophet, but we who have been blessed with the gift and the assignment to preach God's word, we should take great encouragement, but not only us, each and every one of us who are Christians, we've been called to serve God, to serve each other, to show God's love and exhibit it in that way. So we should be inspired by this because when you look at those Old Testament prophets, they toiled in searching the scriptures to learn the deep, deep meaning of God's prophecies. However, as they were toiling, God revealed to them that their knowledge would be kept limited. He revealed to them that the complete gospel would not be revealed in their time. Therefore, the prophets faithfully served while living in hope of its future revelation. And this should inspire us to faithfully serve while living in hope of the glory of heaven. Amen? Amen. This should inspire us to faithfully serve while we are living in hope of the second coming of our glorious Messiah, Jesus Christ. This should inspire us to faithfully serve as partakers of the good news of the gospel. And it is this good news of the gospel that Peter goes on to address in the second part of 1 Peter, 1 Peter on 1.12. When, after telling the exiled believers that the prophets were not serving themselves, Peter goes on to say they were serving you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now, when Peter says the things that have now been announced to you, the word things refers to salvation being offered through Jesus Christ. It also refers to the proclamation of that grace through the instrument of the gospel. These were the things being announced to the exiled believers that salvation had come through the promised Messiah, who was Jesus Christ. These were the same things that were veiled in the prophecies of the Old Testament. These same things that were now being unveiled through the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament. And when Peter says the gospel was announced through those who preached the good news, that those in that proposition are the New Testament apostles. That's specifically who Peter is referring to in that particular statement. Those New Testament apostles that included Peter himself, Paul, John, James, and the others. 
They were the ones who revealed the mystery of the gospel. That same mystery that was unrevealed in Old Testament times, that was now being fully revealed in New Testament times. And listen, the divine agent who inspired its partial revelation then was inspiring its full revelation in the New Testament. And Peter goes on to identify this divine agent in verse 12. He says it was the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now, with that statement, Peter is indicating to the exiled believers that the same Holy Spirit that inspired the Old Testament prophets is the same Holy Spirit that inspired the New Testament prophets. And he's also indicating that the effectiveness of the veiled grace in Old Testament times and the effectiveness of the unveiled grace in New Testament times was dependent and is dependent on the Holy Spirit of God. This is an undeniable truth as affirmed by Peter. And after Peter affirms this truth, he then goes on to double down on the primary point of his entire discourse. And that primary point is the greatness of the believer's salvation. Peter goes on to indicate that the believer's salvation is so great that the angels in heaven long to look into it. Listen, I want you to think about that for a second. Our salvation is so great that the angels in heaven long to look into it. Now, while you're thinking about that, I'm going to double down on Peter's point. Listen, our salvation is so great that the angels in heaven long to look into it. Our salvation is so great that the heavenly hosts long for its revelation. Our salvation is so great that the heavenly beings were enamored with it. Our salvation is so great that angels sung at the birth of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is so magnificent and so great that the Old Testament prophets, they longed to search it. Our salvation is so great that the Old Testament prophets died in hope of it. Our salvation is so great that the Old Testament prophets were saved in hope of it. Our salvation is so great that the New Testament apostles marveled at its revelation. Our salvation is so great that the New Testament apostles died while sharing it. Our salvation is so great that the New Testament apostles will live eternally because of it. Our salvation is so great that we will live eternally because of it. We will be called home to heaven. We will see the glorious face of God. We will be enraptured by his magnificent glory, and we will worship at his holy throne. Oh, what a great salvation we have. Amen? Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you. I hope that this was encouraging to you. I know one thing that I'm very aware of is we talk about it in seminary and among preachers, and as we're preparing, God is actually molding us. So as I am here to encourage you, please know that God has encouraged me greatly. I am just amazed at his great mercy. I'm amazed at the great lengths that he went to save me from the pit of darkness that I was in in 2001 when I first came to believe. And 
as I go deep into the scriptures, I fall in love with him at a deeper and deeper level. The more I know about him, the more I want to serve him. And I hope that studying the truth of his word and the depths of his love encourages you in the same way. Amen.